Hi, this is Harmony, and thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast. In this episode, Russell and I are talking about Ashtanga yoga practice, aging, injuries, and how to adapt the practice for both aging and injuries, and some funny stories about getting injuries and what we've done about it. But just a little heads up, this episode is uncensored, and so you might hear a little bit of adult language. So if you have kids or other sensitive ears around, please use your headphones. And if funny stories and colorful language aren't your cup of tea, you might want to skip this one. Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, I'm Harmony, and welcome to today's episode of Finding Harmony. I'm so glad you found me. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm also very happy to have found you. <laughs> and that's Russell Case. He's also joining me again on today's episode. We have been asked to talk about Ashtanga yoga practice and aging. Hmm. Uh, aging. It's, um, what just keeps happening, doesn't it? There's nothing you can do about it, really. It just, time well, marches no, on. No, no, they say that yoga is this uh, radical, uh, radical intervention in the aging process. I was promised that it would, I would live to be 200 and my hair would be black. <laughs> 200? Yeah. That's, I don't want to live to be 200. Well, if your hair was black, <laughs> then maybe you wouldn't maybe like it. But it is true. Yoga does slow down the aging process, and there is some science to back this up, do isn't you want there? you to hear about the science? I want to hear about the you science. You don't. Okay. I do. Okay. So I heard this directly from my friend, Dr. Uh, Dean Ornish. Uh, we gave a presentation at the White House together in... 2012 on complementary and alternative medicine. And I had organized the guest list and my very good friend, Tina Logdameo, who you might've met in Mysore at some time. Um, she was assistant, uh, excuse me, deputy director of the white house initiative on Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders. She asked me to help her put it together. And it was during the Obama administration and uh, she invited Dean Ornish. I'd invited like Richard Freeman and Eddie Stern, uh, a couple other folks like that, uh, John Kabat-Zinn. Um, I had invited uh, um, David Lynch, but uh, he sent his uh, director of the David Lynch Foundation, my good friend, Bobby Roth. If you're out there, he, he was there sitting just to my right. And Dean presented this research uh, to the White House on yoga. And it was on this thing that I hadn't really ever heard before uh, called a telomere. Mm -hmm. Dr. Dean Ornish, famous uh, cardiovascular surgeon and disciple of Swami Satchitananda. You, you know him. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he did the Spectrum Diet, that book. You've got that book. I ha I I'm a big fan of Dean Ornish. He's he's a big proponent of reversing uh, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, 
and all kinds of problems through vegan diet and has the science to back it up. You you brought his book into our marriage. <laughs> I, I think I did. It probably came between us. <laughs> so, uh, Dean uh, presented this notion of the telomere. It's not a notion, it's a factual thing. So, at the end of your chromosome, you have this little tag. And I, I don't really know enough about chromosomes to know how many you have, but I think they're, they're in the tens of trillions of chromosomes that make up your human body in, in each individual cell. And the, te- and the telomere is this tag on the end of a chromosome that is an indicator of its life cycle and how long it's, it's living. And when a chromosome starts to decay, that's when it breaks down. It can turn the, the cell cancerous. And if the immune system isn't working properly, then the immune system doesn't kill the cancer cell. This is, some, this is a natural process. It happens about once a month that a cell turns cancerous and we eat it. We we literally eat the the tissue of cancer, and when that doesn't happen, that's when the cell starts to to multiply exponentially, and we have a real problem on our hands. Right. So the telomeres, as you can imagine, kind of important. Keeping the telomere healthy. Yeah. So, what Dr. Ornish posited was that nothing science knows of nothing maintains the health cycle of a telomere. Um, Not exercise, not diet, not um, good music, good music, nothing. Well, no. Oh, interesting. Um, Not exercise. What? Not, not smoking, not, not smoking to the point of music. And actually to the point of all of these activities, what transforms the telomere, mm-hmm. which normally degrades 10% per month? Wow, that's a lot. It is a lot. It, it's designed to, to die. Mm-hmm. We're designed to die. That's what cancer is. It's a, it's a, um, it's a function in the body that, that ends our life cycles so that we don't go on too long. But cancer itself is a growth. It is a life in a way. It's an off switch for the life form. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a living organism that ends the life form it's it's inside of. Okay. Okay. So when you practice mindfulness mm-hmm. 3 times a week for 30 minutes at minimum. Yes. Mm-hmm. The telomere and this is the only thing shown to do it. The telomere increases in length by 2% every month. Wow. Not just a reversal of the 10%, but an increase in length. So you're physically increasing the length of the living organism by performing mindfulness. Now, as a yoga teacher, you know that fucking anything can be done with mindfulness, including raising a baby, uh, doing the dishes, uh, playing basketball. When done with mindfulness, when done with attention and breath, And I imagine a certain level of regulation and um, non-discrimination of likes and dislikes. Right. Then the telomere will increase in length. And what was the type of mindfulness that these people were doing in the study? I don't have any fucking clue. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm assuming it was like a, a very specific practice. Well, with, practice, D- with Dean, it, it probably um, it probably was Vipassana based, uh, yeah. paying attention to 
you know, some kind of sensation yeah. uh, of your breath. Cause I, I, th- I think that Dean Ornish and John Kabat-Zinn are quite close yeah. and they're probably both using the mindfulness word. And of course the mindfulness word was used as um, a proxy for Burmese Goenkaji based Vipassana meditation. Yeah. That is Mindful. mindfulness. Yeah. John Kabat-Zinn is using that word just in the same way that Beryl Bender Birch is using power yoga. Yeah. To get a particular audience. Right. To describe Ashtanga yoga. To, get, to describe Ashtanga. Yeah. In, in John Kabat-Zinn's case, he's phenomenally successful mm-hmm. in getting the word mindfulness to be per, per, uh, pervasively used in institutional circles of hospitals, schools, and insurance companies. Right. And so now those, they, they've taken to it. They've cottoned to it. Yeah. Whereas if you said, uh, oh, Buddhist meditation, they would say, oh, no, 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 no. We don't want to do that. No, no. That's religion. Right. Right. <laughs> now, the fucked Hum- up thing. Humans are funny, aren't we? Yeah. The fucked up thing that I felt when when I was in my uh, my nonprofit, Yoga mm-hmm. for Kids, whatever, um, we said, well, we're going to start using mindfulness instead of yoga. And I said, look, yoga is intrinsically non-religious as a word. Just use that word. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness, if you met, if you if you Wikipedia mindfulness, you're immediately going to get to to Goenkaji. Yeah, or some kind of Bud- Buddhism. Burmese yeah. Buddhism. But anyway, the term is being used. Um, yeah, it's pretty widespread. We've it's all, widespread. It's used uh, as co- 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 colloquially. Thank you. <laughs> the weird thing about it is that. For a lot of people, they take the word Zen for granted. Right. If you Zen something, if you do something with Zen, nobody thinks of Buddhism. Nobody thinks of religion. They should. Yeah, that's very Buddhist. It's very Buddhist. But when you say, I'm going to, that that was really Zen. Everyone's cool with that word. Yeah. But once you say, I'm going to do some yoga, people think, oh, that's like, that's Hindu religion, right? Yeah. Even though it's really not. Yeah. Again, it's sort of uh, maybe Zen was more adopted into the uh, lingo or the slang of our wider society. Wider society for meaning like peaceful or quiet or calm. Yeah. Yeah. And it was not a big deal. Yeah. But you were asking about aging. Yeah, let's get back to aging with the telomeres and and mindfulness increasing our length of life and also our youthfulness, right? That's how we yeah. got onto this. Yeah. Well, I I that's I think about that. I think about um how originally back in the day in the early days of my yoga practice when I was 18, 19, and I was not drinking milk. I was not drinking caffeine. I was not taking pork or eggs. Uh, I became a raw foodist, uh, vegan. And the idea was to try and extend my life, you know, give me as much of an opportunity to reach enlightenment as I could, mm-hmm. and, not, and um, as much of an opportunity to be, to create as much art as I could in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. That was the idea. Now at 45, I can say, I really didn't think it would take this long. <laughs> I kind of thought, you know, it'd be over by now. <laughs> but it's like, this is, 
I'm really kind of overextending my lifetime at this point. Like I'm really kind of <laughs> over it. Like, this is really taking like it's far too much work <laughs> to extend your lifetime. The amount of work that you and I have done with our strong, the getting up at 1.30, 2.30, the veganism, the not drinking, the not smoking, the not going out, the not seeing other human beings. <laughs> it's going on 25 years, 30 years now. <laughs> I'm, I'm at 28 years into this thing. And I'm starting to think that, you know, I'd like to get out more. But we can't go out anymore. <laughs> Then the coronavirus hit. (laughs) Well, I think it's, I mean, it's an interesting question because definitely I've noticed for myself that, um, you know, in my 40s, now that I'm in my 40s, Mm. um, you know, dealing with some symptoms of perimenopause and things going on, there's a different- You're running hot. I'm running very hot these days. Uh, there's a, there's a big shift in hormonal shift again. There's a lot of different aches and pains and things that I never had before going on, like in my joints. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, a couple years ago, a bunch of different injuries from just ridiculous things like, you know, stepping funny. And then, oh, yeah. and then I have an ankle injury for the rest of my life. Right. You um, tripped on the stairs one day. Oh yeah, and like sprained then, my finger, and now I it's wrecked forever. <laughs> and your ankle too at the same time. Yeah, there's and your knee and my knee. Yeah, there's been all kinds of weird like Just stupid things, stupid things. Um, and definitely, I've noticed that the recovery time is a lot slower for little injuries or tweaks or things that happen in the body. It takes a lot longer to recover, and I feel. Um, I think personally much less, uh, I don't know, excited about overextending myself physically in my practice um, where I'm going to, I might not be able to do it the next day. Or something could happen and it will always be wrong. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've that's the other of, thing. <laughs> I've got a number of one of those things in my body. Like that will never be right again. Yeah, I mean, never say never. I mean, things do heal, but but you start to accept that maybe there's the possibility that that this might just always be this way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've got 21 years on the evolution of my left hamstring. Well, that's probably not going to heal. It's completely torn off. <laughs> I've got I've got now 15 years on the right knee from when somebody came up and asked me a question while I was doing my third series practice. Uh-huh. I was in, um, what was that posture? A Varanchiasana. Varanchiasana. Oh, yeah, do you know B. that? B, you know that, that Guruji joke? No. You don't know it? I don't think so. Manju told me this joke. Uh-huh. This is Guruji's favorite joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you, you know your vinyasas, right? I, I hope so. How many vinyasa? In Janushasana A. Um, on both sides? Yeah, all together. All together. Uh, I guess back to downward dog is Vimshatihi. Yeah. Not including back up to Samastitihi. Do yeah. I have to go back up to Samastitihi? No. Okay. Yeah, Vimshatihi. The people at home don't speak Sanskrit. Okay, sorry, 20. <laughs> <laughs> how many? How many vinyasa? <laughs> How many vinyasa does Navasana have? 
Navasana. Uh, Navasana has uh, a 12. How many vinyasa does oh Varanchyasana B have? How many? It doesn't matter. You're going to the hospital. <laughs> Guruji's favorite yeah. joke. So, I mean, it's... That I had to go to the hospital. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. It's, and Nick Evans, you remember? Yes, I remember Shredded Nick. Shredded his knee. Yeah. Because Shrap pointed at him. And told him to move it back a little. And yeah. it was gone forever. Yeah, it's it's a it's a little bit of a precarious position. And for those of you who don't know what Varanchyasana B is oh, in advanced right. series, it's... Basically, Janushirshasana ex- to the ex- or Janushirshasana C to the extreme. You push the heel all the way to the ground and sit on it. Yeah, for so no good reason. I think you've seen this posture before, probably, but you're basically inverting sitting your foot and sitting, and sitting on, on the, the arch. Yeah, I used to do it. Like I would just flip my foot into it at parties. Yeah, and say, "Here, do this." And then one day, somebody, some, some jack off in my yoga room came up to me while I was doing it and asked me a question and I turned and it dislocated. Yeah. It's, it's precarious. You can't move around too much in that posture. And then it's done forever. (laughs) Unless you go get surgery. Yeah. Yeah. I should go get surgery. There's that option. Yeah. But you also suffered from some pretty severe sciatica for a while, which let's you still about, suffer from. Let's talk about my suffering. Let's talk, you um, like to talk about your suffering. Yeah. So if I, if, you know, all NBA teams now have a guy on staff whose job it is, is to measure and quantify the physical limit of the players and whether or not they're in the reds, the red, they're redlining. Uh-huh. And then they go to the coach and say, Andre Iguodala is redlining and he cannot play another game. He needs a rest day. Yeah. Um, he need, we need to reduce his minutes so that, so that he won't have a major accident. Because when a player redlines, yeah. they're going to have a major accident. Like Kevin Durant gets a, an Achilles heel rupture. Right. Because he's, he's, maxed yeah and i mean that's these are this is a great example because these people are professional athletes they're young they're fit they're healthy right but it's just a matter of your body can only take so much and if you're continually uh working yourself at a point of maximum capacity uh there's a greater chance that something's gonna uh give because you're not giving yourself enough time to heal and recuperate. And the same, I think, is for yoga, right? Because it's a very physical discipline, especially Ashtanga yoga. It's quite intense. Um, you can't always practice at that high level of intensity all the time. But nobody told me that. No. So and, <laughs> No one told any of us so that. So <laughs> in 2007, I had gotten into a thing, a regular thing, and it had been going on for about five years mm-hmm. where I would prepare for my Ashtanga yoga practice. And I and I had been told by Sharat, our Sharat uh, Paramaguru, our Sharat Rangasame Joyce, that I did not need to do this. You just get up and do the practice. Right. And it would, my, I would go into so many different muscle spasms and be incapacitated by going into a yoga room cold. Right. That is like, no, I'm not, forget that. I'm going to prepare. Yeah. And so I would get up and I would go through a routine of 
Pre-practice stretching. Pre-practice stretching. I would do most of advanced A. (laughs) That sounds terrible. Only the flexibility postures. I would do all of them though. I would do all the foot behind the head. I would do all of the back bends. Um, And I was getting good results. I was grabbing my ankles in Kapatasana. Excuse me. I was grabbing my calves Mm -hmm. in Kapatasana. But I was doing all of these pre-practice stretches so that I wouldn't feel Kapatasana. Right. You'd already be warm and gooey. Gooey. Yeah. Yeah. And I was getting noticed for it. I was getting more postures from Sherrod because of that depth of Kapatasana. Right. So... I mean, it's hard to read into his mind, but I remember the day I started advanced is when I finally grabbed my calves in Kapatasana. And he looked down at me and said, Russell, you do advanced tomorrow. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah. So he just wanted you to stop grabbing Kapatasana so so high high up on your leg. <laughs> I, I, I doubt it. So um, he was encouraging. So I had gone through about two hours. I was in my hour my second hour of pre-practice stretching going into my last half hour and my last half hour, I would be getting into the third series stuff like a Kapadaraja Kapatasana. Mm-hmm. And um, also I would do that King Arthur pose against the wall. I would do basically Raja Kapatasana against the wall. Right. And s- suddenly I'm doing seven hours of Ashtanga yoga. I'm doing seven hours of practice every day. Some soft and passive, but it was hard. Mm-hmm. And so about seven hours of practice. Like a couple hours of pre-practice stretching, then like couple a hours couple of hours of Ashtanga, and then, and then maybe and a then couple hours of- Chanting pranayama sitting and, and post-practice. Yeah. Okay. But um, five hours in the morning. Yeah. Hard. And so I, I'm in this, I'm against the wall and I'm trying to grab my, my um, ankle in this Ekapada Raja Kapatasana. And suddenly, like an electric eel, I felt the entire length of my right psoas. Uh. And I was like, oh, that's what a psoas is. <laughs> yeah. And I fell over and I started yelping like a dog. Hey. <laughs> Like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> and my roommate dragged me, helped drag me to my bed uh-huh. and left me there yeah. with like a, a pile of, um, of um, muscle relaxants and ibuprofen. And I just stayed there for three days. <laughs> oh, no. And I came back to practice finally. And everyone's like, where, where are you? Where is Russell? Where is he? Where, where have you been? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It was like, I was, I was in, I was really suffering. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, it's like, there's a lot of emotional pressure there. Yeah. To show up. And perform at a certain level. At a certain level. Yeah. You I, felt that. I get it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you do whatever you can to hit that level every day. Yeah. You don't go in there at, at 60%. No. Of, of intensity. No, you you have to, yeah, you have to have reached a certain level of maturity in your practice to be able to do that. And by maturity, I don't mean advanced asanas. I mean like within yourself to be like- Oh, yeah, maturity (laughs) as a mature, sane person. Yeah, to be like, yeah, I'm just not feeling it today. I'm I'm going like 50% of my normal. And that was cool. Like Peter Sanson was like a, like, 
a saint. Yeah, he'd he go could, in there at 40 or 50%, take it easy, no yeah. problem. Yeah. Mature but, practitioner. Mature practitioner. But not <laughs> us. No. No chance. Children practitioners. <laughs> we were I would that was embarrassing. <laughs> if I couldn't go to my limit, that was a humiliation. Right. So I I get my one fucking posture of advanced day that year. And I go, I'm go, I'm flying through Kent on the way home to uh, England. I guess I'm living in England at that point. And I'm, I'm doing a workshop with this guy, with this guy, Scott, who was, I think John, Scott Johnson, who was John Scott's student. Nice guy. Yeah. And I'm in a really good place in my body. I think, I think this is actually like my physical peak 32 years old. And I was just kind of showing everybody uh, Dwee Padashashasana. And I remember I was like sitting straight up and down, showing everybody cold as hell Kent, England in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. I think actually we were just visiting family. Yeah. And went into it and I was, and then I just showed everybody what it was. And the next morning I was never right again. <laughs> oh, no. I've never been right since. Yeah, some herniation maybe or something. Permanent herniation of a couple of discs down there is what the MRI says. Mm-hmm. And at that point, everything shifted and started to change. And um, finally, I couldn't walk, sit, stand, practice, teach without pain. Mm-hmm. And it was the kind of pain where if I went to the bathroom to urinate (laughs) and soon as I released the bladder, I would feel a sharp knife into the toe of my foot (laughs) every single time. Cause it's all related. Sure. These nerves are related. Yeah. And at that point I truly understood what a meridian was. Yeah. Meridian is a real thing. Yeah, it is. It's a nerve connected to your sciatic nerve in your lower back. And when you squeeze that with your piriformis, it's going to feel, it's going to send waves and, and knives of pain right down your, your, your body. Yeah. If something's impinged. Yeah. So that's, that's finally, I, um, I got in with an acupuncturist, my friend Sparky in San Francisco, um, Mark, uh, Pominovsky and, um, I finally ended up apprenticing with him, but I worked with him every uh, couple times a week for three years, learning how to put it, how to put needles in, learning about meridians, learning about acupressure, and fixed it. Mm-hmm. And I got a little bit of my advanced practice back. Yeah, but it still wasn't the same. Uh-huh. And then later. It was like there was like waves of advanced practice would come and go. Right. When things were all very good in my life mm-hmm. and everything was in the right place, I could do get back to advanced practice. But then I can I can now I'm very sensitive to the sciatic. I'm very sensitive to heat or or warmth or coldness or dampness in my legs and hips Mm -hmm. and like oh i know what that is i need to that's sciatica forming that's an impingement is forming in my lower back and the the sciatic nerve 
and it's constantly vibrating. So how do you adapt your practice to this? How do you adjust what you're doing to like, if you're having a day where you're feeling like a lot of pain or a lot of achiness or inflammation or something going on, how do you adjust your practice? How would, you know, how has your practice changed from when you were young and just like balls to the wall and now, you know, 20, 25 years later, it's- I don't put my balls in the wall. (laughs) Um, So- now, um, when I have a sciatic symptom, a little thing, you know, pops up, like say, uh, a little spike in my psoas in my groin, mm-hmm. like, Ooh, I know what that is. I know exactly what that is. Um, I have to do back bends. Right. Um, cause you know, this, the spine's like an accordion, right? Mm-hmm. And so as the accordion say folds in the inside of the accordion starts to pinch and bubble the disc. Yeah. And so there's little, there's little bubbles of disc underneath your guts because you've been, you've been sitting in a chair too long or you've been too intensely rounding your spine and akapata shashasana. Yeah. Some compression or compression. And then it bubbles and pinches disc out the front underneath your belly. And there you have a herniation. That's the herniation. That's where it is. So you need to do the opposite. Yeah. You need to unfold that accordion and do a back bend instead of a forward bend. To create space for the disc will actually, it can actually return back into its natural place and you can reverse the herniation completely. Yeah. Without surgery or other more invasive procedures. If you're very dedicated to that work of unwinding the lower spine. Mm Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, it's still sending out nerve signals and every day the hamstrings get tighter and tighter. Right. So I have to do a lot of work on my hamstrings, so much more than I ever had to before. Mm-hmm. Before the injury, you know, the hamstrings had, fi- had gotten long mm-hmm. and I could whip them around and do the splits and um, do trivia kramasana. Mm-hmm. But when the nerves are sending out information to contract all the time, they get tighter and tighter. And so I'm not getting more flexible. Every day I have to work out that hamstring. And paradoxically, I can't do a forward bend. Right. <laughs> it's tricky. <laughs> it's a it's a nightmare. Yeah. Downward dog's helpful though. Yeah, downward dog's good. Um, actually the splits are better than Pashimatanasana. Yeah, because one leg. Yeah, forward. one leg, and I'm not rounding the lower spine to do a split. Right. Yeah. So a lot of lunging. And lying so on the back. So much lunging. Like uh, doing like- I love lying down. Yeah, supta trivikramasana oh. where you're lying on the back and doing splits or supta padangushtasana. Those things can be quite helpful for yeah. disc herniations because your low back's being supported by the floor. Yeah. It's, um, I can't cheat as much in yeah. supta trivikramasana. Yeah. Um, it's helpful. Yeah. so that said what it taught me right away because i was a little bit when i was in my early days teaching in england and taiwan is i was a little bit of a hard ass Mm -hmm. a little bit of just really a little bit of an asshole as a good friend uh eric um the tattoo artist 
I forget Eric's last name right off the top of my head, but Eric always liked to call me an asshole after I chastised him. <laughs> um, I stopped being a little bit of an asshole. I started being a lot more empathetic for my older students. Yeah. What they were dealing with. I started being able to see sciatica in people. I could, I started being able to, I was much more aware of debilitation in people. Mm -hmm. And I started looking into like, well, you know, how do you, how do you teach older people? Yeah. That's, I mean, because it's important to learn how to adapt your own practice as you're aging. And Hmm. some of that's a little bit intuitive if, you know, when you have compassion for yourself, you maybe take things a little slower, maybe, um, you know, don't do things that are irritating. Right. Um, as humiliating as that is. Yeah. But you have to kind of leave some things for a while if, if you're not able to do them and work on other things. Well, like a, a lead class on tour with Shadrat is humiliating. Yeah. I can't do that. Yeah, it's very fast. It's very quick paced and it's challenging, especially if you have a lot of injuries and things going on. After I do a forward bend, I need to be in Shalambasana or Cobra for about 30 seconds. Right. To reverse that curve of the spine. Yeah. I I have to. Mm -hmm. I can't move. Yeah. And no one's making time for me to do that in Sherat's live class. Right. Yeah. And so that's where a Mysore style or self-practice is very, very valuable, especially when you're dealing with injuries or aging or chronic conditions, you can adapt the practice so that um, it works for you. And if you, especially if you have an intelligent teacher, your teacher can help you adapt the practice so that it's working for you in a healing way. And you still feel like you're advancing and you still feel like you're able to do some new things. So, I mean, how do you teach old students? How do you approach that? Do you have a specific thing? I do. Um, I saw in um, Deskachar's book about his dad, uh, Krishnamacharya, this notion of krama and krama being a, a system for teaching. And what I realized when he was talking about vinyasa krama is that vinyasa krama is a perfection system. Mm -hmm. And I realized very suddenly that Patabi Joyce had been teaching a perfection system to us. Yeah, because we were young and eager and hungry and flexible and... Well, not all of us, but we were all being taught it (laughs) in that, in the 430 slot which is an insane time frame. Yeah. <laughs> if you've ever assisted at the 430 slot, those people are insane. <laughs> They're very hungry. They are, as you said, balls the walls and prickly. <laughs> yeah. Don't, do not touch. Whereas 430 in the afternoon. Yeah, very different vibe. In very the different vibe at 430 in the afternoon <laughs> with Indians teaching Indians. Yeah. <laughs> and like I've seen Saraswati take, take a man in... Urdhvu Dhanurasana and Parsha Dhanurasana and just move him herself. In Parsha Dhanurasana. <laughs> yeah. You won't see that at 4.30 in the morning. No. <laughs> no. No. So this is a different krama. These groups yeah. are different. One is doing samakrama, which is maintenance krama. Right. And one is doing uh, vinyasa krama. Mm-hmm. And actually, some people in the afternoon are doing takitsa krama. Mm-hmm. Like they're doing something that's going to help them with some disease they have. Right. Some sort of therapeutic yoga. Yeah. Some people, um, 
there's there's all these different kramas that were there, like uh, Shishesha Krama, Rikshesha Krama, yoga for young people, um, uh, systems mm-hmm. for young people, uh, systems that uh, were had, had entirely different purposes. And then understanding, okay, if I can if I can hold in my head this this concept that there's a four thirty class a.m. and a 4.30 class p.m., then I can also hold that there are people from these groups in one room at one time. Yeah. So in my class at Stanford, the way that I thought about it was that different people are in different kramas at the same time in my room. Mm-hmm. And some people get the stick, <laughs> some people get the carrot. Yeah. and you, I mean, you had uh, you know a couple of women that were uh, pregnant. Oh man, they were always pregnant women there. It was, <laughs> you had... it was like constantly filled with pregnant women. And then you had like some really like serious, keen practitioners that were, yeah, really like there every day and fully immersed and committed to the practice. And then yeah. you had some older people, people who were ruined. Yeah. Really yeah. injured and like working Wrecked. regular jobs at Stanford. 70 years old and working in to the development office. Yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. I had that. I had it seventy and five, eighty years. Also, um, a student, at least one, I think, that was recovering from cancer. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And I mean, just so, just finished. Yeah, that's just finished like radiation still, and chemo, right? Still bald, actually. Yeah, so yeah. that's. I mean, there's a different approach to teaching all these different students, right? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, even though the system um, or the sequence of postures you might follow you may um change like what would you change like leaving some vinyasas out for people that are like recovering from uh, cancer or are ill or old if if you have uh sciatica like there's no four bends right so maybe do more of the beginning of intermediate series with back bends yeah more lunging yeah many lunges as you can. So like when pregnant women, it was all lunges. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and throwing everything out the window, being creative, it became yeah. a very creative space. Yeah. Cause Sherrod had, had said that. Yeah. You can, uh, when people are sick or they're hurt, you can, you know, start at seated, do whatever. I've heard him say that start at seated. Yeah. If they can't do standing, start at seated. Yeah. Um, so it is free. I mean, it is creative. I had one student who um, started practicing Ashtanga yoga when he was, I think he was about 65 and he had MS. Oh, I mean, yeah. He still has MS and he right. still practices Ashtanga yoga. Um, and I mean, it was amazing to, to watch him progress and move through all of primary series but doing the vinyasas wasn't good for the nervous system. It was too much. Mm-hmm. It was too demanding. So yeah. he would just perform all of the postures. I mean, he learned them all one by one, gradually, the same kind of method. But he would only do vinyasas once in a while, not in between postures and not even in between sides. Yeah. Um, just every once in a while, like maybe in between sections. Mm-hmm. And, um, and would practice in a very, you know, different kind of way than someone who's quite a bit younger and isn't struggling with a, a, a nervous system disorder mm-hmm. like MS. And I mean, the practice he lost, I think 
10 or 15, 20 pounds, something like that. And his MS is completely under control and it's been super healing and therapeutic for him. Yeah. But it's, it's, you have to be able to adapt the practice and also realize that the sequence and the system is a guideline and the structure is there to support you and to give you uh, like a roadmap, something to follow so that you're not like left to your own devices, mm-hmm. but that you, it's also uh, malleable, right? It's also, um, you know, you can, can insert and, take things out as you need to as well, depending on your situation. I also kind of think I should lose you know, 15 to 20 oh, pounds. Oh, come on. <laughs> Let's not get into that. Actually, one of the things I would say, um, one of the best things that I've ever done for my practice was doing a Vipassana. Yeah, that Vipassana meditation, those 10-day silent Retreats and Gwankoji style are incredible. It's such a tonic for inflammation in the body. Yeah. Because what the processing that your mind does oh. with, with, with information, with pain, with stress, work, with yeah. stress, it accumulates in the body. Responsibilities, Responsibility. all of it. Yeah. And removing yourself from that, it's, I've, I've, I've never had a vacation like that. I was I was ten years younger. Yeah, in in my physical body, walking out of that vipassana. Yeah, it's like doing ten years of yoga. Those ten days of vipassana, yeah. I feel like you gain the same benefits and insight as practicing ashtanga yoga for ten years. I would go into the bathroom during our breaks. <laughs> yeah. I do kapatasana in the bathroom. <laughs> Just I felt me. so soft and light. Like, yeah, oh, do kapatasana. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, I felt like I, I had my. Host. My head opened up and my brain like washed with ice water and and it was just yeah, my body felt so amazing after it was yeah. you see how your mind and your body are so intimately connected. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like it when you take away all stimulation, all uh, engagement of the senses, all responsibilities, and it's just you and your breath and sitting for twelve hours a day mm-hmm. for ten days. Mm-hmm. Incredible. You also do that when your older brother gives you a sheet of acid (laughs) and you just kind of see that your body and your environment are completely interrelated and that your mind can make your environment do whatever you want. Yeah, that's a different trip. Maybe a different podcast. (laughs) Yes. That's a very different podcast. Well, we're so glad you guys listened today. Please be sure you subscribe and leave a review. We love to hear from you. And if you have any topics or questions you'd like us to talk about, um, be sure to send us a message. Do you have anything to plug? you have anything coming up? Oh, we do. Yeah. Hey, good idea. We have a self-care summer retreat that's coming up. At, oh, that's the thing with Laura Land yeah, that we're doing. At the end of Je- June. Yeah. That's two days, be fun. June 27th and 28th. Mm-hmm. And you get Mysore, either Mysore with me, private, two lessons. I mean, it's not private, but it's a small group. Um, Mysore online, Zoom. And if you register through Lara, you get Mysore with Lara. 
She and has some kind of gigantic barbarian husband. Right? Yes, Timo. Yeah, he's so nice. And he is a very much immersed in the Buddhist meditation, mm-hmm. Vipassana and mindfulness styles of meditation. And you get Russell's uh, neuroscience. A little bit of that. Yeah, and uh, some yoga sutras and some yoga for trauma and uh, self-care and um, renewal. So it's going to be amazing. It's going to be an incredible two-day weekend. And you can register on my website, harmonyslater.com. And we would love for you to join us. So if you can make the time, June 27th and 28th, uh, it's going to be four of us all teaching together for the weekend. Lovely. Yeah. So that would be nice. We'd love to see some of you there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow Watching the breaking waves There's a hard wind and the soil